Our Father and our God, we thank you for the incredible grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. And thank you that the salvation you started, you promised to complete. That you who implanted the Spirit in us as an earnest, as a down payment, you said that the good work you began, you would complete. And we look forward when the trumpet of God shall sound and the dead in Christ will come out of the grave and those of us who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air. We look forward to the completion of our salvation when this perishable shall put on the imperishable and this mortal shall put on immortality. And then we will see forever the victory of the cross over death. We yearn for that day. But until that day, we ask that you would sustain us, that you would feed us tonight on your word as we study what you are like, for your scripture has revealed so much of who you are. And so give us minds to apply the scripture, that because of our exposure tonight to it, that we would be different people. Help me, Father, and use me, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series on basic discipleship. This is the fifth of 21 handouts. Tonight, God willing, we'll finish this fifth handout. If you are joining us and you're walking into the middle of this, this is the third session on topic number five. All 31 pages of the handout are available online for you to print out. All right, so we are dealing here with the doctrine of the Trinity. And the fifth topic is kind of a precursor to topic number six, where we deal with the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thus far, we looked at the evidences for the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. That is an Old Testament truth, but it is reaffirmed in the New Testament. It's not unique to the Old Testament. And so we saw how the oneness of God is affirmed on both sides of the Bible. And then we began to look at the evidences for the threeness of God. And we recognize that God the Father is called God, not typically a disputed issue. God the Son is referred to is equal with the Father, as is God the Spirit. And so if Father, Son, and Spirit are equally called God on both sides of the Bible, which we examined, then we can affirm the plurality of God in the threeness of God. Tonight, Roman numeral three, we are looking at the evidences for the triunity of God. So that's where we are if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, this is still dripping wet with ink, and so I didn't have a lot of time to go through all the typos. So if you find some, I apologize. I try to catch them if I can, but let's go ahead and begin by reading. And if you're new, I've designed this material so that you can teach it to someone else. When you think of disciples, number one, you should think of your own children. If you have children or potentially grandchildren that you can impact, that's your first line of discipleship. Those are the folks that you want to first help. Um, don't think about the neighbor across the street or the guy down the road. They're important to God, but your children are your primary disciples that God first gives to you. And so some of the dads and moms who are live streaming with us tonight, uh, this is an essential doctrine that you want your children to grasp. And so with each section, I usually give kind of a summary of where we are headed so that you can kind of get a feel for uh, what we are trying to communicate. Keep in mind when studying this subject that the word Trinity is not used anywhere in Scripture. 
This is a term that is employed in an attempt to describe the triune God, namely that there are three co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal persons. By the way, all those words are critical. Co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal persons that make up God. Understand, Trinitarianism is not in any way suggesting that we worship three gods. The doctrine of the Trinity taught biblically says there is one God made up of three persons. Some who have denied the doctrine of the Trinity have been quick to point out that this term is not found in the Bible, and so it must not be true. Though the term Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible, there is nothing wrong with using the term. It is a theological word used to summarize a biblical doctrine. It is shorter to say the word Trinity than to say three co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal persons making up one God. If this presents a problem for you, consider that you will not find such words as eternal security, sovereignty, original sin, and I might add, or rapture in the Bible. The rapture is found in the Latin translation of the Bible, but not the English translation. But those are all theological terms that summarize biblical truth. Yet very few debates debate these theological truths to be taught in God's word. Even so, just because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible does not mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is not taught. What is clearly taught and found in the Bible is the concept that is represented by the word Trinity. And the reason I take the time to just state that in the front end is because when you encounter various aberrations to the Christian faith, what we typically refer to as cults, not Jim Jones type cults, but, you know, theologically based uh, erroneous cults, they will always point out that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. So let's first think about the doctrine of the Trinity uh, historically, the doctrine of the Trinity historically. All right, the doctrine of the Trinity is central to the uniqueness of Christianity. And so it's not surprising then that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most disparaged and attacked beliefs by those outside the faith. Mormons in Jehovah's Witness reject this central tenet when you encounter them you soon discover how much time and energy they use to teach against it in order to make the rest of the Christian faith untrue this is what they'll harp on when they come to your doorstep uh, they usually start with the person of Christ and again they use very often the same terms but they have a different dictionary in which to define them. So when they use the term son of God, they don't mean what scripture means by it. Uh, when you encounter Jehovah's Witness, they begin their dismantling of Trinitarian theology by trying to convince others that Jesus Christ is a created being who did not exist in eternity past and so not fully God. That's the crux of a denial of Christ's deity. They can't deny that he was a historical person who walked on the earth. But what they deny is, is his eternality. Mormons have no problem with Jesus being God for the simple reason that they make godhood available to all who follow the teachings of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, Jesus is God, and we can all be gods. In fact, if we reach a certain state of godhood, we'll inherit planets and all kinds of things. They say Jesus is a created being. 
the first spirit to be born of the Father, Mormon Doctrine, page 129, uh, and a celestial mother, page 516, teaching that he cannot be the eternal God or part of an eternal trinity. And then, of course, depending on the living prophet, they have had different views. Like Brigham Young said, that the way this took place is that God the Father came down and had a physical relationship with the Virgin Mary, and so came Christ. All kinds of heresies. A common refutation used by those who reject Trinitarianism is that this teaching was not part of the early church. And this is what you will hear all the time, whether it's in the Da Vinci Code or some movie, or this was some made-up doctrine that came centuries after the church was started. It is argued that the teaching of the Trinity was invented and imposed on the church by the Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, which met at 324 AD. However, a careful study of church history indicates that the doctrine of the Trinity did not come through political pressure or by man-made originality, but is revealed in Scripture and held by the early Christians. The Council of Nicaea only codified what the church always held. And if you studied Nicaea and the events that led up to it, there were splinters that were created, being created in the Christian faith, and brothers got together and said, hey, let, let's just summarize in a simple document the core beliefs of the Christian faith. They didn't make them up. They were just affirming what the apostles had taught. And so there are similar creeds, and there's more than one with the title, the Apostles' Creed, and even some different versions that are read in different churches, but they all basically say the same thing. Historically, number 10, around 110 AD, a pastor from Antioch named Ignatius, he was born around 35, died 110, uh, affirmed God's triunity in a letter wrote to some believers in Ephesus when he describes his fellow Christians as stones of a temple prepared beforehand for the building of God the Father, hoisted up to the heights by the crane of Jesus Christ, which is the cross, using as a rope the Holy Spirit. Now, he wrote that in a letter to an Ephesian group of believers. And when we say the letter to the Ephesians, we're not referring to it like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, nor was he. You just address letters to different churches in different groups. But you see, even in statements like this, a Trinitarian view of God, Ignatius, Trinitarian beliefs are seen throughout his writings. And if you've read him at all, and if you go to seminary and take a church history course, you will read his writings. Polycarp, who served as a pastor in Smyrna from 69 to 156. Many believe that he was one who was personally discipled by the apostle John. Also demonstrated he believed this truth when just before his martyrdom, he wrote this. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom to you with him and the Holy Spirit be both be glory both now and for the ages to come. So again, even in that little statement, all three members of the Godhead are acknowledged. Uh, Athenagoras of Athens was a Christian apologist. You see his dates. He wondered, quote, who would not be astonished to hear men who speak of God the Father and of God the Son and of the Holy Spirit and who declare both their power in union 
and their distinction in order called atheists. So again, he's asking a question as an apologist in his famous work called The Plea for Christians. But what I'm wanting you to see is that this was not some invented doctrine, as some people say, that they came up with in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. Many other historical examples from the early church could be cited. What becomes clear is that the early church, nearly 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, affirmed a clear belief in the triune God as seen in its recorded prayers, in its worship books, in its early apologetics. And I say 200 years before, based on the writings that we have. It's like, you know, the actual original writings of the New Testament documents, we have none. We only have copies. And of course, we have thousands and thousands of copies that affirm the accuracy of its transmission. God, I think in his wisdom, didn't leave us in originals because people would probably worship the original, much like they worship the pole that was lifted up in the wilderness. But what I want you to see is that early on in the history of the church, we have writings that did survive that are already affirming a doctrine that had been held. One creates, quote unquote, a straw man to argue that the Emperor Constantine imposed the doctrine of the Trinity on the church because the doctrine of the Trinity was a widely held belief prior to the Council of Nicaea. And and let me just say, there are, um, you know, historians who are not Christians. I had one who called himself an agnostic at Boston College, and he would have affirmed that this was a basically held truth. Uh, not because he was favoring the Christian faith, but that's just what history documents. The early church asserted the deity and unity of each person in the Godhead because the Bible clearly reveals this to be true. So the church believed it from its inception, but we have writings not long after the church is formed that affirm what the church had been teaching from its inception. So the argument that the uh, doctrine of the Trinity is some late historical view is just a warped in uh, view and it's not accurate at all. The doctrine of the Trinity is seen operationally. So let's see how we see the Trinity operationally. So far, we've observed several texts that indicate the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And we have looked at several verses of Scripture that affirm only one God exists. Now we want to dig deeper into the threeness of God by observing from the Bible the manner in which each member functions together. The doctrine of the Trinity is seen in the way in which each member, Father, Son, and Spirit, work in coordination with one another. That's the biggest thing we're going to see. We're going to see how each member of the Godhead works together. The way each member functions in relation to one another shows that within the unity of the one Godhead, there are three separate persons who are co-equal, coexistence, coexistent and co-eternal persons. And again, those are three very important words. The Father is equal to the Son. The Son is equal to the Father, co-equal. Coexistent, that is going to dismiss a doctrine that we still have to this day called modalism, that they do not exist at one time, but at different times of the Father becomes the Son and so on, and they're co-eternal. 
All right. In many instances, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in either the same verse or in the same event or in the same action. So same verse, same event, same action. And so, for instance, God's triune unity is revealed in the creational world. We'll look at that as a beginning example. When the world was made, the Bible tells us emphatically that God the Father created the world, God the Spirit created the world, and God the Son created the world. Each is credited with creation. The Bible credits the creation of the world to God the Father himself. In the opening verse in the Bible stating, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim. It's a reference to the Father. Likewise, when Moses gives the nation of Israel a rationale for giving special honor to one day in seven, he wrote this in Exodus 20:11. And by the way, this is a great verse. It's found in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, found in two places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, that by divine commentary, eliminates this thought that there's big gaps of time between the days or that these were extremely long days, like a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, using these verses out of context. Um, Because Moses writes, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the Lord here, see all the caps, which word in Hebrew do you remember does that refer to? Yahweh, very good. For in six days Yahweh, we translate it the Lord. A Jew would say Adonai because they don't want to mispronounce it. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So if the days of creation were long days or big gaps of time between the days and so forth, Moses' whole argument falls apart. It's erroneous, and the Bible can't be trusted. In giving glory to God, so I'm saying that because you have these so-called Christian apologists who say that you can hold both, and you cannot. One is true, one is false. In giving glory to God, meaning the Father for his creation, King David wrote this in Psalm 19.1. A lot of you have memorized Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling or declaring of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Right? That's Romans 1. God's eternal power, divine nature, and so forth are clearly seen by the things he's created. We call that general revelation. The apostle John, in the prologue to his gospel, attributes the creation of the world to the Son when he writes of the Word being the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being. And of course, he'll save you verses later. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the father is credited with creation. The son is. And there are a number of places where the Lord Jesus, like when Paul writes to the church at Coloss in Colossians 1.16, number 11 there, for by him all things were created, both in heavens in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Likewise, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1.10 quotes Psalm 102.25 in order to give God the Son credit for creation when he writes. And you'll remember that passage. We looked at it a few months ago 
where the writer of the Hebrews is showing the greatness of Christ over the whole angelic realm. And none of the angels ever created the world, but the Son did. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So the writer of the Hebrews, if you've read Hebrews 1, says this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible very clearly ascribes the creation of the world, not just to the Father and to the Son, but also to the Spirit. And so in Genesis 1-2, so Genesis 1-2 describes the Holy Spirit's role in creating the world. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And Psalm 104-1 The psalmist opens that psalm with these words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then he gives a very detailed description of God's creation, meaning the Father's creation, and the role of the Spirit in that creation. The Holy Spirit was involved in that process. And so he writes, You send forth your Spirit. They are created, describing the works of God that he's just Um, described in the psalm, and you renew the face of the ground. It's an undeniable fact that the Holy Spirit is involved in the creation of the world and in creating us who walk on this earth. As Job writes in Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there you see two members of the Godhead involved. The Spirit made me, and of course, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. So first, the work of creation is a work that only God can do. Paul affirms that in Acts 17. And since the creation has been attributed to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit collectively, this forces us to conclude that each is God. And second, beyond that, since the Scripture asserts Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Then we must conclude there is unity in Trinity, in Trinity, in unity. If there's only one God, there's no other. And Father, Son, and Spirit are each attributed with the creation of the world. Then you have unity in Trinity, and you have Trinity in unity. And this is just one of many arguments we're going to look at. The Trinity is also affirmed operationally in the Incarnation. Incarnus, you know, from Latin means in flesh, right? So when we're speaking of the Incarnation, that's a, so many of our terms, hundreds and hundreds of terms that we use in Christendom come from the Latin Bible because that was virtually the only translation of the Bible used for a thousand years in the history of the church. So it's seen operationally in the Incarnation as seen when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary we are told in Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, those are three phrases I underline, the Holy Spirit, the Most High, the Son of God. Since other passages like Deuteronomy 32.8 reveal that the term Most High refers to God the Father, and there's dozens of references in Scripture where Yahweh is called the Most High, we have a concrete instance of Father, Spirit, and Son all being involved in Jesus' miraculous incarnation. 
The Holy Spirit overshadows you. I mean, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Father, the Most High, overshadows you. And the end result, the Holy Child, when God takes on human flesh, he will be called the Holy Child, the Son of God. Operationally, the Trinity is affirmed when Christ was baptized. For when Jesus was baptized and he was praying... Luke reminds us in Luke 3, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in you I am well pleased. And so the Trinitarian nature of God is seen for as Jesus is being baptized, his spirit is descending upon him as a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. It's one of the many emblems, if you've taken the course in pneumatology in the Institute, fire, oil, and so on. This is one of the emblems. He comes on him as a dove, and the Father audibly hears, bears testimony as his voice speaks, you are my beloved son. So here in one place, You have God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the voice of God the Father from heaven in a single instance, just like we just saw in the incarnation a moment ago. The baptism of Christ demonstrates that God is indeed three distinct persons who operate concurrently at the same time to carry out the plan and will of God. Now, please do not miss that on this occasion, all three members of the Trinity are present while being simultaneously distinct from one another. So they're all present, but clearly they are highlighted as three distinct persons. That's important. Follow. A popular heresy against Trinitarian theology is known as modalism. Viewing God as one person. So a modalist would affirm the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. They wouldn't deny that. Viewing God as one person one God, but instead of three persons, there is a difference. So they'd say, well, God is one, but he's not three persons. He's not a triunity. Teaching that the Father, Son, and Spirit are simply different modes uh, of the same divine person. Different modes of the same divine person. Uh, a, A modalist falsely teach that God takes on different modes or forms affirming the oneness of God while denying the threeness of God. Modalists commonly say that during the Old Testament era, God primarily manifested himself as the Father, then while on earth as the Son, and then after Jesus' ascension as the Spirit. Now, in fairness to them, they do not limit it to that. So they can say there can be a mode of the Father in this day or a mode of the Spirit in this day or a manifestation of Christ in this day. But in broad terms, they say it was God the Father in the Old Testament, God the Son while he walked on the earth, and after the ascension, God the Spirit. A form of modalism still exists in oneness Pentecostalism. There is various Pentecostals, you know, Uh, Pentecostals of Cleveland, Tennessee, and this branch and that branch. There's a bunch of branches of Pentecostalism. But there's one that's called Oneness Pentecostals. And who would be like the featured preacher representative that you can think of of who's a Oneness Pentecostal? T.D. Jakes. So T.D. Jakes denies the historical view of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
He's been challenged, but he has not come out and refuted the view that oneness Pentecostals teach. In oneness theology, which is anti-Trinitarian, there are no distinctions among the persons of the Trinity. And so they teach that the Father, they teach that the Son becomes the Father, or the Spirit becomes the Son, or the Son becomes the Spirit, and so on. In other words, at different points, they take on different modes. So we're not talking about three coexisting people. God is taking on different modes at different times. Now, you know, you ought to be like see a red flag when you meet someone who's teaching modalism. Because generally speaking, when a person is regenerated from above, while they may not be able to, none of us fully obviously grasp Trinitarian theology. God is so great, but he has revealed a lot in Scripture that for 2,000 years there's been one view on the Trinity amongst those who had ascribed themselves as born-again Christians. But very often when you meet someone who's into oneness Pentecostalism, there's a whole package that comes with it. Like prosperity theology, which is T.D. Jakes. It's prosperity theology to the core, and that's a different gospel. The problem with modalism, are we on 29? Yeah, the problem with modalism is that it ignores texts like Luke 3, 21 to 22, which we just read, which reveals all three persons at the baptism existing simultaneously and relating to each other at once, showing that they are co-equal and co-eternal and really coexistent. In Jesus' upper room discourse, he speaks of each person of the Trinity when he makes a promise to his disciples as recorded in John 14, 16, and 17. Let me read that. John 14, the upper room discourse. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he, this helper, may be with you forever. By the way, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. He's sealed in us for the day of redemption. That's one aspect of our security in Christ. That the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not receive him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So the world, in this context, being largely the unbelieving Jews in Christ's day as represented by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, they couldn't see what was right in front of their face. And so in Matthew 12, Jesus accuses them of being on the edge of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Father can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin that can never be forgiven. They had rejected the testimony of God the Father in the Old Testament Scriptures. They had rejected the testimony of God the Son that he made about himself, showing from Scripture, for he said, the Scriptures speak of me, that he was indeed the Messiah. And there was only one testimony left. And that was the testimony of God the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit did these miracles, and on that occasion in Matthew 12, a triple miracle through Christ, they said, that's not the Holy Spirit working. That's the devil working. So they couldn't see him or perceive him. So the Lord here is seen as praying to the Father 
for the Spirit, because remember, this is a new covenant promise. That's why the person today who is, um, no one ever born of a woman is, was greater than John, Jesus said, but the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John, because John never lived to see the fullness in the new covenant. He died on the other side of Pentecost. And so he is praying to the Father for the Spirit. And so again, his emphasis is on the triunity of God is very evident. His emphasis on the triunity of God is very evident. In John 14, 26 and John 15, 26, those are some other verses you can look up. He uses the same pattern when mentioning the three persons of the Godhead, thereby indicating their unity, not only in their purpose and will, but also in their basic nature. Another great example of the triunity of God, 33, is the baptismal formula. The triunity of God is also seen in the baptismal formula Jesus gave us. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now note, Jesus commands us to baptize not in the names, but in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jesus institutes baptism as an ordinance, and there's only two in the church, ordinance in the Lord's table, when he institutes baptism as an ordinance and tells us that it should be done in someone's name, every Old Testament believer knew that God identified himself as Yahweh. That was the sacred name of God. There are other titles for God in the scripture, but the sacred name of God by which he identifies himself is I am Yahweh. So for instance, in Isaiah 42, 8 in the NASB, I am the Lord, that is my name. In the LEB, that would be the Lexham English Bible. It's more literal. And instead of saying the Lord, they just say, I am Yahweh. That is my name. That is why the words of Christ are so unbelievably striking in saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not at all concerned with the fact that the name of Yahweh is not being used because for him, naming the three divine persons of the Trinity is a perfect substitute for the name Yahweh. And if, again, you were with us in our course on pneumatology, we saw that there are some instances, and we highlighted it already with a couple of verses a few weeks back, where the Spirit is referenced as Yahweh. And there are times even in the Old Testament where the angel of Yahweh, which is... God the Son is given the same title. But again, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit share a common name, indicating common essence and equality. And so both plurality and unity are taught in that three persons are mentioned, but all three share one name. It's, it's, a, it's a great verse on the triunity of God. Just a simple baptismal formula that you hear here almost every Sunday as we baptize people. By the nature of this command, Christ Jesus also affirms that each are co-equals. So there is no hint that, there, that one is more God than, say, the others. All right? The oneness... And threeness of God is also seen in the resurrection of our Lord. 
For it was Jesus who said to the Jews in John chapter 2, the Jews who opposed him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In that same chapter, a few verses later, John reminds us that Jesus was speaking of the resurrection of his earthly body, the temple being his body. So while Jesus claims to be able to raise himself, Still, other scriptures teach that Christ was raised by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And Peter states that the Father raised the Son. Well, who did it? Father, Son, and Spirit did it. They are distinct persons, yet they are inseparable. So, for instance, Jesus says in John 10, 18, No one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. You see that by the way in which he was arrested and that he didn't have to be arrested. He knocked a thousand people on their back, if you remember. And then he says, I have authority to take it up again. Um, or here in Romans 8, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so there the spirit of God is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. Or in Acts 3, for you first... Um, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, talking to the Jews, by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So there are reference to the Father. And we could find many other examples on this one doctrine. Again, while the triune nature of God is in some respects beyond the comprehension of our finite minds, the Bible nonetheless affirms that God is one in nature, but three in persons. One in nature, three in persons. Likewise, the Apostle Paul definitely taught the triune nature of God by including the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit together in his benediction when he writes to the Corinthians. For in associating each member together, he is saying they are co-equal. Remember this, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, referencing the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A common benediction we often quote in the church. This benediction would be impossible for Paul to give if, if, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were not equal persons within the Godhead. To associate God as the modalist, who's, you know, and not all three at once, you know, when it blows away modalism, it blows away Jehovah's Witnessism, it b blows away Mormonism. To put each member on the same level is an affirmation of equality and unity. Okay, let's think about the doctrine of the Trinity as seen not only operationally and historically, but relationally, relationally. The early church asserted the deity and unity of each person in the Godhead because the Bible clearly reveals this to be true as seen in the relationship that they share with one another. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see the relationship that they share with one another. The Trinity reveals that God is all-loving or omnibenevolent. Omnibenevolent, meaning that love has always been a part of his eternal nature. And by the way, those are words you want to teach your kids. Omniscience, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, all the omni words that describe the nature of God. Love, love in and of itself, love requires multiple persons who are in relationship to one another. Therefore, if God is not a plurality of persons then we could only say that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, but that he is not omnibenevolent, meaning he was incomplete until he created us. 
So sometimes people create, oh, well, God made us because he needed someone to love. God didn't need anybody to love. God is totally complete in and of himself. Oh, God was lonely. I heard a preacher say that once. God was lonely. And he said, God wasn't lonely. <laughs> Yet the scripture reveals that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16. One of the God is verses. We looked at those a few weeks ago, the God is verses. Which is not merely an attribute of God, but is part of his eternal makeup. It's part of his eternal makeup. The fact of God's triunity is rooted in the truth that God is love. Because by definition, love requires a community of persons. As noted earlier, each member of the Godhead, each member of the Godhead was involved in the incarnation because it happened to the Son by the power of the Most High and through the agency of the Holy Spirit on Mary's womb. Or maybe I should say in Mary's womb. <laughs> um, the very teaching that the eternal Son became a man through the Virgin Mary in order to accomplish the redemption of fallen man can make absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense at all apart from the Trinitarian nature of God. So we've seen God as a community of persons, is seen in his love, operationally as in the incarnation. Think about it. Whose wrath was the son bearing? If he existed all by himself, and precisely who forsook Christ on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, when he was dying, if God did not exist in a plurality of persons? About the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible reveals that all three members of the Trinity were present through the life of Christ and participated in carrying out God's plan of redemption. Every member of the Godhead is involved in the plan of redemption. Think about what Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord, verse 10, Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased to crush him. He's talking about the Messiah, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, in walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Or thinking about Hebrews 9.14, the question is asked, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You read that chapter and you discover that God the Holy Spirit is empowering the Lord Jesus to go to the cross. He did everything by the Spirit. He decided to live in total dependence on the Father. The incarnation that led to the cross is the kingpin of Christianity and neither make any sense at all apart from a Trinitarian perspective. In fact, 
different roles in the Godhead as they relate to one another does not deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but requires the threeness of God. So the different roles within the Godhead as they relate to one another does not deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but it requires the threeness of God. For instance, the Bible reveals there is subordination within the Trinity. Jesus taught, and by the way, these subordination terms are important because when the cults show up at your door, these are among other verses that they use to try to dismiss the deity of Christ. Jesus taught us that he is positionally subordinate to the Father. John 14, 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So think through this. While we have already examined in this handout that the Son is as much God as the Father, when we dealt with each member's deity, yet between the Father and the Son, the Father is greater in position, but he is not greater than the Son in essence or being. He's greater in position, but not in essence or being. Jehovah's Witness, who fostered the heresy of third century, it's called Arianism, saying that Jesus is less than God the Father and therefore created and not God. So there was a guy by the name of Arius, and, uh, and he propagated Arianism, and he argued that Jesus, being less than God, therefore had to be created. However, from the opening verses of John's gospel, you've got to put John 14, 28 in the opening, uh, in the context of the whole gospel. In the opening verses, it is taught that the Father and the Son share the same essence and purpose. And so we read already John 1, 1 and 2, John 14, 9, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. They all affirm that same truth. It is essential to understand that being under authority does not equal inferiority. For Jesus was totally under the authority of the Father, yet he is equally God. So you see both taught within this gospel. Likewise, the apostle Paul affirmed the same truth to the Corinthians. He said, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. When God calls women in the church to recognize the headship of men, and within a marriage, the headship of their husband, it is not because women are unequal or inferior, but because there is an established God-ordained order of authority to be respected. Just as a wife is no less of a person than her husband, but submits to him, Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands. Even so, Christ's subordination is similar in his relationship to the Father. Furthermore, we learn that the Spirit is positionally subordinate to the Father as the Father sends him to us. Jesus said in John 14, there in the upper room discourse, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you.
So the Holy Spirit is also positionally subordinate to the Son, not only to the Father, the Father's going to send him, but he's subordinate to the Son and that he does not speak on his own initiative, but he receives from Christ what he is to reveal to the apostles. That's what he said in John 16. Same night, different locale, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So he doesn't speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears from the Son. To say that Christ or the Spirit's subordination as a denial of their deity is heresy and goes beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. Stated simply, to subordinate Jesus or the Spirit's essence, their being, you could say, is heretical. But to subordinate Jesus's or the Spirit's office or role is biblical. These verses are a wonderful example of the Trinitarian nature of God woven into the fabric of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus was not trying to give us a complicated lecture on the Trinity, but was simply helping us to understand how the persons of the Trinity interact and work for the good of his people and his plan. If we say we love God, we should strive to know everything we can about him, even if it is difficult to grasp, and it is. And even if we don't fully understand, that doesn't mean, well, we just throw, I can't understand it. And what if your wife came to you and said, you know, I've got something I need to tell you. It's going to be really hard for you here, but I don't want to hear, I don't want to know if you love her and it's important to her. You want to hear what she has to say, even if it's difficult to understand. Likewise, if you love God, even though there are some doctrines that are difficult because of who God is. You don't throw up. No, you study and see what God has revealed if you love him. It was important enough to God to reveal himself to us as a trinity. And so consequently, if we love God, we should attempt to understand everything we're able to grasp on this biblical truth. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? The secret things are known unto the Lord our God. But the things he has revealed, he's revealed to us and our children. In other words, that's a great verse. I, I love to quote that verse sometimes. I say, I don't know everything about God. The secret things are known only to the Lord our God. But the things that he has revealed, he's revealed to us and to our children. We have seen that the Bible reveals that the Father, Son, and Spirit are each God. But at the same time, there is only one God. We must affirm the truth. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's the Shema. That's where we started. The Lord is one, not three. As 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is one God. At the same time, we must affirm that the statement, the Lord is one, does not contradict the truth of the Trinity, but in fact establishes it. And so we studied from the opening verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw that the noun used for God's name is in the plural. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense. It would be like saying, he are fat, or they is small. In the beginning, bara bara elohim, plural God. 
the heavens and the earth. Likewise, we saw the plurality of persons in the Godhead is implied by the use of plural pronouns in connection with God. When he created man or in his rebuke of man. Remember when he created man, let us, not let me, let us make man in our image. Or when he rebukes man, when God said, Genesis eleven seven, let us, not me, let us go down there and confuse their language. Tower of Babel, right? If God were not a plurality of persons, then the usage of this plural pronoun would be both wrong and deceiving. But God doesn't deceive. That God is a plurality and a trinity is taught in the whole of Scripture. At first glance, it may look, first glance, it may look like we are bad at math to say there are three entities that are God while there is only one God. Yet, that is precisely what the Bible declares that there is only one living God who is comprised of three separate, co-equal, and co-eternal persons. So on the one hand, the Bible reveals the threeness of God. And on the other hand, it reveals the oneness of God. And so we get the term trinity, the term triunity, which simply means three in one. Historically, through the study of Scripture, the church has always believed that the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Yet there is just one God. That's what the church has always affirmed. At the same time, the church has always believed that the Bible also teaches that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each member of the Godhead is distinct, and yet they are inseparable. Distinct, yet inseparable. So when we define the Trinity biblically, what are we saying? We're saying that there is one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each of those persons is fully and equally God. All right, stay with me. We're almost done. Take a deep breath. All right, let's talk about some illustrations for the Trinity of God. None of the popular illustrations of the Trinity are completely accurate descriptions of the Godhead. We must keep in mind that while various illustrations may give us a glimpse of the Trinity, the illustrations are not entirely accurate. If you push each one to the limit, you're going to see they all break down. Just know that an infinite God cannot be fully described by a finite illustration. So, first of all, there's the challenge of illustrating the Trinity. God is transcendent. You know what that means. That's an important word. God's above us. God's not part of the creation. That's pantheism. God is above the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's transcendent. The Bible also teaches that God possesses imminence or nearness. And it is in his imminence by which God chooses to draw near to us. So people can go to some extremes. They make God part of the creation. That's pantheism. Or they make God over the creation, but not involved in the creation. That's deism, right? That was Benjamin Franklin. You know, the deist illustration is God like created a clock. And as a beautiful clockmaker, he made it and wound it all up. And then he just steps away and it runs by itself. 
That's deism. And some people think that that's how the universe runs. That God's not really involved in the affairs of men and nations. That God doesn't really see what's happening in America and who is elected president and who's not and all the immorality and murder and violence and law. God doesn't really see. It's up to us. It's a twisted view. No, God is transcendent, but he's imminent. So while... On the one hand, God wants us to seek to know him. How can we as finite creatures possibly know and understand the infinite when our minds and thoughts are so far beneath his thoughts? Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. With God being so great, some would consider an attempt to illustrate the Trinity as an exercise in futility. And yet, we should attempt to develop a doctrinally sound illustration based on what God has revealed to us. But even after our best attempts, we should admit with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I preached a sermon just on that. Another aspect of God's transcendent nature that places him beyond the reach of his creation is that he is holy and righteous and without sin. Yet, God's love for his creation is so great that we see his imminence overshadowing his transcendence as he breaks through the barrier of sin and separation to draw all mankind back into a close relationship. So God is transcendent and that he is way above us, and yet God's love for his creation is so great that we see his imminence overshadowing his transcendence as he breaks past our fallenness through Jesus Christ. God's desire to be near us becomes clear in his incarnate son who came to provide forgiveness and to bring us back to himself. I say all this to say that Nothing in our world can fully and adequately illustrate the Holy Trinity. But we're going to attempt anyway. <laughs> but understand, there are limitations, right? So some common illustrations of the Trinity, and some are better than others. And I'm sure when we get to heaven, God would say, oh, it's pretty close, but you know... <laughs> Nonetheless, the attempts by pastors and Bible teachers and theologians to draw analogies from the creation of Scripture can be helpful, and we ought to use them, um, but you want to choose the best ones, okay, because some are actually somewhat heretical. One well-liked analogy is to explain the unexplainable, is to illustrate the Trinity with an egg that is made up of a shell, a yolk, and an egg white. The deficit of three parts, making one unified single whole, is that God cannot be divided into parts. For the Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence. But the same cannot be said for the shell yolk in egg white. So it breaks down. Another illustration that is said to have been used in evangelizing the Irish 
was to take a single shamrock clover with its three leaves, picturing the triune God, though God obviously cannot be divided into parts, right? Uh, It was said of St. Patrick, St. Patrick's kind of a debatable guy. Was he Catholic? Was he evangelical? Uh, Lay all that aside, he, he did bring Christianity to the Irish people. And this was an illustration he was said to have used to try to communicate the um, doctrine of the Trinity. A very popular illustration, probably the most popular that most Christians use, and it's a bad one. Very popular illustration for the Trinity is to use the different states that water can take as a solid, liquid, or gas while remaining H2O. While its chemical composition remains the same, The problem with this illustration is that God does not switch modes or states where the Father becomes the Son or the Son becomes the Father like H2O changes form from ice to vapor to liquid, right? As noted earlier in our study, the idea that God manifests himself differently at different times and in various forms or modes is called modalism, which is a heresy to be avoided. Others illustrate the Trinity using geometrical designs like the triangle with its three equal sides conveying equality while forming one complete whole and so capturing some of what it means to be three in one. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Norman Geisler, he was a great Christian apologist, lived into his 90s, died just a few years ago. This was his favorite illustration for the Trinity. Just as a triangle has three distinct corners, yet one triangle, for it could not be a triangle if the corners were separated from it. Even so, there is simultaneously threeness and oneness in God. God is one in essence, but he has three distinct but inseparable persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The geometric design using three overlapping or intertwined circles, which is another symbol for the Trinity, have been used to represent the three persons of the Godhead in their equality, in their unity, and in their eternality. This is an interesting illustration. Each of the three circles were of the same size to symbolize equality. And so this is a symbol you will see. Some say it goes back as early as the fourth century. It's a little difficult to nail it down by the fourth century, but maybe. In either case, um, you can see these three circles. They were intertwined in order to symbolize their unity. And because the design of a circle has no apparent beginning or end, it symbolized the eternal nature of God. The circles are so arranged that if you take one away, then the other two will also separate. So this is thought to emphasize the interdependence and indissolubility of the triune nature of the Godhead. Spatial relationships, and these are the last two are the ones I use the most. Spatial relationships can illustrate the triunity of God in that anything that you can measure consists of length, width, and height, three in one. Even if I took this ink pen and I put a dot there on this piece of paper. Even that little dot of ink has height, width, and depth. And yet, the height is not the depth, and the depth is not the width, and the width is not the height. And if you were to take away any of these dimensions, then you would no longer have space. 
Using the concept of time, and this is my also favorite illustration, can be helpful in illustrating the Trinity and that time consists of past, present, and future. Three and one. And yet the past is not the present, and the present is not the future, and the future is not the past. Each is distinct, while each is inseparable. Because you can't have one without the other. You can't have just present time. You can't just have past time or just future time. Yet they are distinct, yet they are inseparable. This is a very popular uh, diagram, and I think it's one of the better that I've seen, and it's uh, drawn in different ways. There was a church found in the 12th century, a Byzantine church, that had this particular diagram, and you'll see it sometimes in Latin. But notice from the center, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. But going around the side, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. So it is affirming the uniqueness of each member of the Trinity, yet their inseparability. And as always, we have a scripture memory verse that we encourage you to uh, memorize with the handout. Let's bow in prayer. Father, it is really a humbling thing just to think about who you are and how great you are and how we will spend all of eternity in worship, learning you and knowing you deeper and more profoundly. We are grateful for the things that you've revealed in this age that we can know and understand. And we ask that you would help renew our minds, that we would not think of you in some distorted way, but in a way that's consistent with the revelation of Scripture. Thank you that even when we pray, Lord Jesus, you told us to pray our Father. You told us to pray in the Spirit. And thank you, Holy Spirit of God, that even when we don't know how to pray, you intercede on our behalf. So, Father, we pause in your holy presence tonight, thanking you that you are a good God who decreed a way of salvation that we might escape your wrath. Thank you that you imputed to our accounts the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And the love of the Spirit was poured in our hearts, bearing witness to our human spirits that we've become children of God. We know you said a day will come when no one can work, when the last evangelistic opportunity will expire. So help us to be good stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.